You're listening to Theology and Apologetics with Thomas Fretwell, bringing theology to life. Okay, so Revelation 14. Last time, if you remember, we did a kind of special topic study. We looked at the issue of globalism, the Great Reset, and the book of Revelation. That was kind of a standalone study. We took a deep dive into those subjects, but it was building upon what we had been talking about in chapters 13, which is all about the mark of the beast, this person called the Antichrist, his counterfeit trinity, his government in the, in the world, his control over people, his economic system that he will set up in the last days, here, the identification system he'll have, this world where people are forced to bow down to his statue or suffer the consequences. And you remember that that followed on from chapter 12, which was that glimpse into what we called the unseen war, which was Satan's attempt to destroy the promised line of the Messiah through the Jewish people. And that has played out through history. We spent quite a lot of time looking at them. These are two very heavy chapters in the book of Revelation. There's no doubt about it, chapters 12 and 13. So now we come on to chapter 14. We've had quite a dark picture presented to us. And if you remember, one thing I've always said as we go through this book, as we study things like the mark of the beast and prophecy that are quite interesting to study, we need to make sure that we maintain that balance. We need to make sure that we understand that Christ is still the center of this book. And in chapter 14, we get almost like a recalibration, just in case we spent too long dwelling on the mark of the beast and looking around the world and being kind of depressed of some of these things. Chapter 13 moves straight on without a break. Remember, there are no chapter divisions. Remember, it moves straight on to what we call the victory scene on Mount Zion. And it is a wonderful scene. It is the other side of the coin from chapter 13. Chapter 13, the beast does not have the last word in this book. The the lamb does. And that's what we see. In chapter 13, we have the beast. In chapter 14, we have the lamb. In chapter 13, we had the spurious, the counterfeit, the false. In chapter 14, we have the real, the genuine, the lovely, and the true. In chapter 13, we had the mark of the beast. In chapter 14, we have the mark on the foreheads of the children of God. In chapter 13, we saw false worship and idolatry in a corrupt world system. And in chapter 14, we see the true worship of the true Lamb of God. In chapter 13, it was those who follow the beast in all of his ways. And in chapter 14, it's those who follow the Lamb. And this is the contrast we now get. So let's jump straight into this, in this, uh, this chapter. Verse 1. It says, Then I looked, and behold, the Lamb was standing on Mount Zion, and with him 144,000, having his name and the name of his Father written on their foreheads. Now remember, chapter 12 and 13 and 14 are kind of like an interlude in the book of Revelation. Just, uh, just before we saw the opening of the seventh trumpet, And then we'll have the seven bowls of wrath that come from that that get picked up again in chapter 15 onwards. 12, 13 and 14 have one of those chapters that give us a little bit of greater depth about certain things before we continue with the chronology. So we've seen, obviously, the the unseen war with Satan. We've seen the career of the mark of the beast. And now in chapter 14, we have this wonderful picture of the victory scene on Mount Zion. And it's good to have this in our minds. In all the chaos that we've been studying in the book of Revelation, everything we've seen happening... It is not chaos that is unordered, if I could say it like that. The lamb is still in charge at this thing, and things are moving towards his desired end, and that is what we see. We get a glimpse here now, almost as if the writer knew that after reading this, we would just need that little glimpse of the glory and the victory that will be ours in Christ Jesus, and we see that here. 
on this victory scene in Mount Zion. We see the victorious, glorified Lord standing on Mount Zion with his holy ones, his servants behind him. It's a wonderful chapter. We saw in chapter 13 a world that was in awe of the beast. Do you remember it said that they were, they were just enamoured with him? He did this miracle and they said, who is like unto the beast? Who can wage war with him? That is the feeling that we have in the world. They're worshipping the dragon. Humanity is crushed. Any dissent is crushed under his reign. But now suddenly, without warning, we go from that verse in chapter 13 that says his number was 666. It's the number of man. It is the mark of the beast. To this verse, then I looked and behold the lamb standing on Mount Zion. In the Greek, there's no, there's no pause with that. It rolls straight in naturally to that thought there. The king in glory, in victory on Zion. It's a reminder to us in this day and age, as it would have been to those Christians in the first century reading it, it does not matter how dark things are in the world, how dark their current situation is. If you are his, do you remember in chapter 13, the writer exhorted us, make sure your name is in the Lamb's book of life. If your name is in the Lamb's book of life, the darkness does not matter because ultimately we know that we win. Christ wins and we have victory through him. And chapter 14 here gives us that little glimpse of the future here. It's a wonderful chapter. It has huge application for our current situations today. Wherever you may find yourself personally or we may find ourselves nationally, however you're looking at it, whatever situation we are in, it cannot take away from the fact that one day we'll have that victory on Mount Zion. That is our future, ultimately. So the question then becomes to us who are his servants, what would God have us do whilst we're still here? What is our purpose? What is our mission? What does it mean for us to be Christians in this day and age? And Revelation does answer that, I believe, in many ways. The point of this whole chapter is to present us this victory, to give us a glimpse. So he says, then I looked and behold. And we've talked about behold a lot through Revelation. It's a very dramatic word. It could be translated, open your eyes or pay attention. It's, a str- it's not a gentle word. It's, a, it's not a request. It's a command from the Lord that we do not miss the significance of what he is saying here. In fact, you'll find the word behold 1,500 times in the Bible. I find this interesting. We don't use the word behold today, do we? It's maybe slightly antiquated. But the idea is still, we very much understand it. When, something, when you want someone to pay attention, behold, here it is. Behold the man. Behold the king, these sorts of things that go on. And here we have behold the lamb. It's a very strong word. And as I was thinking about this, 1,500 times the Lord says, behold, open your eyes, pay attention. I wonder how much we miss in the spiritual life simply because we don't pay attention. It's easy to blame it on the devil always, isn't it? Or blame it on the flesh, blame it on all these different things. But quite often, I reckon it's because we're just not paying attention. (laughs) Or ourselves, yeah but we just pray on attention. How much of the spiritual life actually comes down to paying attention to what God has already said and revealed in his word? How many of those 1500s do we actually know? How many of them have we paid attention to? In Revelation, I think about 30 times we have the word behold, and all of them are very, very significant, this one particularly being very significant. Now, many of you can probably share the struggle You're trying to maybe have some time to sit, read, seek the Lord, to pray. You're constantly distracted, whether it's notifications or wanting to know what's going on in the world, people not leaving you alone, any number of a million things that we could think of in this world. Life is always very full and seems like distractions can come from anywhere at any time. Yet, the Christian life, the pilgrim's path that we've been studying, 
is one that must be walked with eyes wide open, eyes that pay attention to what is going on and to what God has said. Just as Jesus expressed bewilderment at how easily his disciples could fall asleep at pivotal moments in history, I believe we must learn that lesson. Look at Matthew 26, verse 45. He came to his disciples and said to them, are you still sleeping and resting? And then what does he say? Behold, pay attention, open your eyes. The hour is at hand. The Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of sinners. And I don't think we're any better than the apostles in that sense. We have the tendency to sleep at these moments in history. But God is pleading with us to be those whose eyes are open and who are paying attention. Let me read to you a few of these. Isaiah 13, 9. Behold, open your eyes. The day of the Lord is coming, cruel, with fury and burning anger. Open your eyes. Your king is coming to you, just and endowed with salvation, humble, mounted on a donkey. Open your eyes, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. Revelation 1.7, Behold, open your eyes, he is coming with the clouds. Every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will mourn over him. Open your eyes, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and will dine with him and he with me. Revelation 5.5, Stop weeping, open your eyes. The lion that is from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has overcome, so as to open the book. And then right at the end of this book, almost one of the final words in this book, again, Revelation 22, verse 7, he says, And behold, open your eyes, pay attention, I am coming quickly. Blessed is he who reads the words of the prophecy of this book. I think that in the church, it is probably high time we make every effort to put aside what is distracting us, whatever that may be for each of you, you can answer that personally yourselves and make sure that we do pay attention, we do open our eyes to the things that God is doing in our lives right now and the things that he has said will take place in the future. They are there for our benefit. He did not give them to us for no reason. I mean, actually, he's already asked us 1,500 times to pay attention. How many more does it take? Let's make sure that we are people whose eyes are open. Then I looked and behold... He says, verse 1 again in Revelation, the lamb was standing on Mount Zion. Pay attention, the lamb. Now, if you're reading an authorised version, it may just say a lamb. That is incorrect. There is a definite article in the Greek. It is the lamb. It is referring to a specific lamb, and it is a lamb that we have already been introduced to in this book. Do you remember back in Revelation chapter 5? The lamb who was at the centre of the throne of God, the lamb that was slain the one that the elders are singing to and angels are praising, every created thing which is in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all things in them I heard saying, to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be blessing and honour and glory and dominion forever and ever. This is the lamb that it's referring to. He's pictured over and over again. 31 times you'll have the lamb mentioned in the book of Revelation, which is interesting because most people associate Revelation, don't they, with end times prophecy, which is true, I understand that. But the theme of Revelation, again, is the slain lamb, the unveiling of Jesus Christ. We shouldn't be surprised. We dealt with that in our introduction. And the lamb, of course, was a sacrificial animal. It reminds us again that the lamb was sacrificed. Where was this done? This points us to the very centre of Christianity, of history, of the universe, of the eternal state. You could almost say right at its centre is the slain lamb, Jesus Christ, the cross of Christ. And it's quite an amazing thought when you think about that the one who created all things, the one who sustains all things, the one who one day will judge all things. 
the one to whom every knee will bow. This is the same one who came to earth as a lamb, clothed himself in human flesh, laid aside his power and was sacrificed for us. One act of sacrifice, the Bible says, the just for the unjust, the righteous for the unrighteous, the innocent for the guilty. That is what he did. The blood of Christ has triumphed over everything. We see heaven praising, singing that they have been purchased by the blood of Christ. The cross is central to our life, it's central to our thought, and it must be central to our worship. Notice in Revelation, whenever they're mentioning the blood, usually they're singing. Usually they're praising God. It is a reason above all for praise. And ultimately, why? Because it brings us eventually, yes, it brings us to the new birth, to the salvation, to the body of Christ. Ultimately, it will bring us to where we are in Revelation 14, victory on Mount Zion in the coming kingdom. That is what the blood does. It carries us all the way through there. We owe everything to that lamb that was slain. The slain lamb, the cross, is clearly God's revelation of himself to us. Looking at the cross of Christ, that slain lamb, you see his sovereignty in history, you see his providence, his benevolence, his justice, his power, his holiness, his mercy, and ultimately his victory. The cross also shows us how serious sin is. Remember James said, when sin is fully grown, it brings forth death. There had to be a death for sin. That is how it was defeated, in fact. The cross shows us the depth of God's love. God demonstrated his love that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. 1 John 3.16, we know love by this, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. The cross shows us that God is involved in our human experience, and this is one that is often missed out when people talk about the meaning of the cross, but I find it very significant. Do you remember one of the prophecies that we've studied in Isaiah, repeated for us in the book of Matthew? Matthew 1.23, here's that word again. Behold, pay attention, open your eyes. The virgin shall be with child, shall bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. And I believe this is more than just saying that God was there and came to earth 2,000 years ago. God, part of God's mission was actually to be with us in our human experience. And we see this by way of illustration. In the 19th century, when Queen Victoria was on the throne, she had a daughter called Princess Alice. And Alice had a four-year-old son who she loved, was the apple of her eye. And he, he came down with what was known as black diphtheria at the time, nasty disease there. And Alice was overwhelmed with anxiety. It was a highly contagious disease. It was very deadly at the time. And she was not of good health herself. So the nurses who were looking after the child told her that she couldn't come near the child. She had to stay away from her son. But one day as Princess Alice stood in the corner of her son's room to weep and pray for him, she heard him whisper to the nurse, why doesn't my mother kiss me anymore? And the princess mother couldn't stand such a thought in the mind of her dying child. So she raced to his bed, held him in her arms and smothered him with kisses. Unfortunately, they turned out to be kisses of death, their last kisses they would have. Alice herself contracted the disease, and within a few days, both the mother and the son were dead. But I find in this a very good analogy, because we know for Christ, death was not the end. God's love for mankind compelled him to enter into our story, our suffering, our mortality, to even become infected with our disease. What does it say in 2 Corinthians? He became sin for us. He literally became sin for us on the cross to die with us and be buried with us. Yet he also did this ultimately, we know, to remove the power of death over mankind that we would be redeemed to himself. He is involved in our humanity. Whatever we are going through, whatever we are, where we are in this life, the lamb knows and he is with you. That is the very meaning of his name, Emmanuel. 
God with us. That is who he is. And finally, the cross shows us how sin is finally overcome. And this is again the scene that is before us in Revelation chapter 14, the final victory. Death was defeated. What was accomplished on the cross was finished with the resurrection. That last enemy, death, was finally defeated. One day it will be totally removed from this earth. And that is what we are really seeing on Mount Zion. Let's go back to Revelation. It says the lamb was standing on Mount Zion. You could call this the photo finish. You know, when you get the photo finishes, you cross the finish line. This is it here. This is that, ma- that monumental scene. The grand moment of redemption has been reached. We've often made reference to Psalm chapter 2 going through this book. I believe here we have it again. Psalm 2 verse 6, the Lord says, As for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. Isaiah 24, the moon will be abashed and the sun ashamed. For the Lord of hosts will reign on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem, and his glory will be before his elders. One day we know from the psalmist, it says that Mount Zion will be beautiful in elevation. The joy of the whole earth is Mount Zion in the far north, the city of the great king. This is like a glimpse, the portrait that is painted at the end to commemorate the great victory of a leader. You've often seen throughout history, leaders, when they win a battle, they have a portrait painted, don't they? There's a famous one, well, there's loads of famous ones of Napoleon and these people with the the armies of decimated behind them of all their enemies. This is kind of what we have here. The great victory of a leader standing triumphantly on Mount Zion, his enemies vanquished, his soldiers beside him, finally reclaiming the earth to its rightful owner. That is the picture we have here. It's an awesome picture and it is a huge contrast with what we've seen in the previous chapter where we're told that the beast was ruling the earth and everyone was being made to bow down to him. Here, now we see the lamb in glory, in victory on Mount Zion. And it says, with him, 144,000, having his name and the name of his fathers written on their foreheads. Here we see who is with him in this victory scene. Just as the lamb was referencing chapter 5, the 144,000, you may remember, were introduced to us in Revelation chapter 7. These are a specific group of Jewish people, 12,000 from all the 12 tribes of Israel, who were sealed for a specific ministry during this final period of history. And they were sealed on their foreheads for this role. Remember when we talked about the issue of foreheads and mark of the beast, we said that they were used, the forehead often is used to identify possession. These people, it says, are the Lord's. They are sealed in him. And it is a contrast to those who have taken the mark of the beast on their foreheads. They are the beasts. That's the contrast we have here. Let's look at verse 2. And I heard a voice from heaven, like the sound of many waters and like the sound of loud thunder. And the voice which I heard was like the sound of harpists playing on their harps. And they sang a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and the elders, and no one could learn the song except the 144,000 who had been purchased from the earth. And now we get a glimpse of this heavenly praise. And here's another thing you need to be aware of as you go through Revelation. In between what we, maybe if we could call the more famous parts of Revelation, the letters to the churches, the opening of the seals, and and what we've just studied, the mark of the beast and all these things, you'll notice that steadily throughout this whole book, there is a steady increasing crescendo of praise being built up person by person, group by group, ultimately that will culminate in when the entire earth is praising Jesus Christ. We see this begin in Revelation chapter 5. It says, They sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the book, break its seals, for you were slain 
and purchased for God with your blood men from every tribe, tongue, people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to our God. They will reign upon the earth. And then the angels joined in. Worthy is the lamb that was slain to receive power, riches and wisdom and might and honour and glory and blessing. And then everything joined in. Verse 13 of chapter 5. Every created thing which is in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea, all things in them I heard saying, to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be blessing and honour and glory and dominion forever and ever. And then in Revelation 7, we saw the great multitude, the martyrs of the tribulation, join their chorus in the praise to God. They said, and they cry out with a loud voice saying, salvation to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And now again, a few chapters later in verse 14, we're seeing another group added to this hymn of praise, the 144,000. And it says that they sing a new song. Their contribution was unique because their ministry was very unique. They were sealed through the judgments of the tribulation. They were the most faithful and fearless servants in this most darkest time of history. And because of that, they get to add their own unique hallelujah to the chorus of praise we see resounding throughout the earth. Verse 4. These are the ones who have not been defiled with women, for they have kept themselves chaste. And here we get a few more additional details about the servants of God. They have not been defiled with women. This specifically seems to mention the, the issue of sexual purity. This is not talking about sex and marriage. We know that the marriage bed, it says, is specifically undefiled. So that's not the issue that's going on here. What I believe the contrast, why it's mentioning this, is because... During the system of government that we've just come from in Revelation 13 in the last days, it's probably indicating that it's likely going to be extremely perverse. That is the idea, and that should not shock us. We, we see that throughout history all the time. Any traditional forms of family are probably by now completely eroded. We see that in our day already heading, don't we? Imagine what it would be like when the church is gone and when all of these things are out of the way. These things will evaporate very quickly. Anything goes. It's heading this way already. I could have gone into a lot of things at this time. Go back into history. The worship of false gods throughout the Bible, into the Roman era, throughout pretty much every era in history, you'll see the worship of false gods often has a sexual element to it. It does. Our culture does that today. We don't have a temple to Zeus. We have different terms, diversity and secular idols that we have. All of these things are still the same. And here we see now the 144,000. This is why I believe it mentions this, this slightly unusual thing here. It's telling us that they are different. Because they were sealed with God, they knew their purpose. They, they were different from what was happening in the world at this time. Remember, this is a time, the end times, people's love has grown cold. Remember it says, Jesus, yeah, in the end times, people's love is going to grow cold. The dragon is active. All manner of deception is upon the, upon the earth. Is what you could really imagine how perverse, not just sexually, but everything is at this time. We probably have no idea and then we have the 144,000 sealed on the earth with the forehead, with the name of God. And these are the people who are different at this time. It says they keep themselves chaste for the kingdom of heaven. And I'd imagine that finding someone to settle down with is just not in their thoughts at this time. What it basically means is that that was not where the world is at this time. For them, they understand this is the final period of history. They have been sealed for a specific purpose, and that is to do what they do, witness during the kingdom. They are fully dedicated to the mission in the last days. That is all that I believe is really being highlighted here at this time. And it says, look at this next verse. I love this verse. They keep themselves chaste, and then it says, they are the ones who follow the Lamb wherever he goes. Is that not an amazing verse? They are the ones who follow the Lamb 
wherever he goes. You could really do a whole sermon on that one verse there. What a description of life. They follow the lamb wherever he goes. They were utterly devoted to the call of their shepherd. We've just seen here the picture of the good shepherd climbed atop of Mount Zion, followed by these faithful servants. Does not this accurately represent the heart of a true disciple? The life of a true disciple, as it should be. Someone who is willing to follow Jesus wherever he goes. And if that doesn't challenge you, you're not hearing it. It should challenge you very much. When I read that, I think, it's a, you read it and you read about these great people and we put them in a different category. But is the call on the Christian any different at this time? Because if we're very honest with ourselves, there probably are limits to how far we would follow. Sometimes I think that. We only follow so far until he asks us to do something that we just say no to. Or we follow at a distance, almost allowing ourselves that little bit of time to see where he's going to go, and then we can decide whether we're going there too. Everyone understand that? I find that in my own life too. It's almost for, it's like a safety net. Sometimes our attachments to this world, sometimes our flesh, sometimes our fears, any other number of reasons stop us from truly following him in that same way, wherever he will go. Over and over in the Gospels, Jesus told his disciples to follow him, to deny themselves, pick up their cross and follow him. Thankfully, many have answered the call. None, I believe, will do it so perfectly as the 144,000 that we see here, which is why we have them on the Victory Hill with Mount Zion. But you see, in the kingdom, it is faithfulness that eclipses fame as the mark of greatness. We have that wrong on the world here. Even in the Christian world, we have that wrong mainly because we idolise so many of our Christian heroes that we call. And as we should, look to them for inspiration and the great things they've done. If I said Augustine, if I said Martin Luther, if I said John Calvin, Jonathan Edwards, George Whitfield, Billy Sunday, Billy Graham, most of you will know who I'm talking about. Yeah, We know those names. And whilst they all did wonderful things for God, there are a million names who are forgotten to this world. But yet those names are in the Lamb's Book of Life and they will have their victory on Mount Zion. Let me give you one example. It's a man called John Hooper. Most people don't know John Hooper unless you're sort of really into the intricacies of Reformation history. He was an Oxford academic. He got saved simply in the library reading the Book of Romans. I like that. That <laughs> For me, that's a great testimony. In the library, surrounded by old dusty books, reading the Book of Romans, this man got saved and he started obviously reading the Reformation ideas. He eventually had to flee the country because of his preaching. He learned, he went to the continent that was like a stronghold for Reformation ideas. He learned Hebrew, he learned Greek, he studied under the great reformers, and he returned to England under King Edward. And he preached there to packed houses in the king's court. He even preached to the king himself many times. But then the king died, and his half-sister, the Catholic Queen Mary, ascended to the throne, and she unleashed that storm of persecution against Protestants at this time. Hooper was thrown into Fleet Prison, he lay in the dark on a few bed, clammy bed of straw with the city sewer drain running through his cell. He described his conditions in a letter from January the 7th, 1554. He said, on the one side is the stink and filth of the house, on the other, the town ditch, so that the stench has infected me with sundry diseases, during which time I have been sick, and the doors, the bars, the chains being closed fast upon me. I have mourned and cried for help, and no one came. But I commit my cause to God, whose will be done, whether it be by life or by death. 
He never got out. He was burnt at the stake a few weeks later. And dying, he had the words of the Lord's Prayer on his lips. He was one of the first Marian martyrs, first English martyrs to die under Queen Mary at this time. No one really knows his name, but I can guarantee you his name is in the Lamb's Book of Life and he will have his victory. For him, following Christ wherever he goes, meant first that he got to preach to the king in the highest palaces to the highest personal authority in the land, and it also meant that he was in a dungeon for the rest of his life and he was burnt at the stake. As the Apostle Paul said, if we died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. The Christian life is funny like that sometimes. It seems backwards to us with eyes from this world, but when we have eyes of eternity, we see that we really are the true victors. He will have his victory. For some, Christ may lead you to the palaces. Think of Daniel, think of Moses in different ways. For some, it will be to the dungeons, Paul and Silas. For some, it might be to life. For some, it might be to death. In modern times, think of people like Corrie ten Boom. For her, it was Ravensbrook. For Spurgeon, it was to the pulpit. For Susanna Wesley, it was simply to raise 11 children, two of whom changed the world. For Mary Jones, it was to walk 50 miles to purchase a Bible. For Chuck Smith, it was to open his house to hippies during the 60s. For some, it may be to run businesses, to support missionaries, to write music. For some, it may be to work in a job that you don't like just so that you can tell one person about Jesus. Who knows? You see, there's no one model. Following Jesus will look very different for different people depending on what he has called you to do, and thus we must not compare our lives to others. We need to ask, though, are we being faithful to where he is leading us, and are we willing to follow? And that's a question I think we're all probably still going to be working out. <laughs> I'm not going to lie and tell I've got that one figured out. We all need to hear that call and lay down these things that distract us. Most likely the situations that we are in now, be they good or bad, whether we're happy or unhappy in them, you are in them because you are following Christ in this world. And thus it is imperative that as you are doing this, you have this victory scene of Mount Zion fresh in your mind. The redeemed of the Lord are conquerors through him who loved us. Let's look at the last verse here. These are the ones who follow the lamb wherever he goes. These have been purchased from among men as firstfruits to God and to the lamb. So the 144,000, as of all the redeemed, are blood-bought. It's back to that issue of the lamb that was slain, the cross of Christ. He purchased us with his blood. And it says they are first fruits. We've talked about first fruits a lot. This was the offering that the Jewish people did. It was the first of the offering, and it was given to the Lord to symbolize the anticipation that many more would come. I believe the 144,000 are the first fruits of the redemption of Israel that we shall see shortly in the book of Revelation when Christ comes. Let's look at verse 5. And no lie was found in their mouth. They are blameless. So you see this is a, quite an amazing group of people. This, these 144,000, they were for such a time as this on the earth, I believe. It says no lie was found in their mouth. They will be a group of people who preach the truth in a period of histories where the father of lies is having his day. That's this, again, the contrast with chapter 13. Do you remember the, the Antichrist, the false prophet, and the beast? There'll be lying signs, lying wonders. All the activity and deception of Satan will be on the earth at this point. And it says men will be given over to the delusion. The only way to make sure that doesn't happen is to hear the truth. It's the word of God. It's the lamb, again, here, doing this. These people, their mission at this time is to have the truth come out of their mouth. No lie was found in their mouth. And we see this on Mount Zion. Psalm 15, verse 1 to 3. O Lord, 
who may abide in your tent and who may dwell on your holy hill. He who walks with integrity works righteousness and speaks truth in his heart. He does not slander with his tongue. He does evil, nor does he do evil to his neighbor, nor takes up a reproach against his friend. The tongue is always so important in scripture. We often miss that. But we see here, the tongue is supposed to speak truth. And it says they are blameless. Ultimately, this is not sinless, this is blameless, I believe, because they are chosen in him. It's the same way he describes the church. We are holy and blameless in him. They trust in his strength and they live a life solely devoted to Jesus in probably the darkest period of human history ever known. Now, as we close, we'll leave, we'll do the rest of Revelation 14 next time. I want to just sum up the lives of these faithful exemplars that we have in the 144,000, these servants of the Lord who follow the Lamb wherever he goes, because their lives give us a very good glimpse of what the triumphant Christian life should look like, the things that we should focus on, the things that we should know and understand. Firstly, they are ones whose calling comes from being sealed by God. When they were sealed by God, they knew that they had a different purpose on this earth. And that is no different for us. The same language is used to describe the Christian when he is born again and he is sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise for the day of redemption. It's the same principle. They know they are sealed and called into service by the Lord. And that fact alone can be a huge motivation as the world gets on top of us often, as we forget what we are actually doing here on this earth. They know their strength is from him. As we all know, we are frail and weak and broken vessels in many ways. We need the strength of the Lord. Another thing, their life is characterised by praise. Praise should always be on the lips of his people, simply because we understand what the, the lamb that was slain did for us on the cross. That is enough to be praising him for, but yet there is so much more in the word of God. Their lives are singularly devoted to the good shepherd, and they will follow him wherever he goes, and thus that means they know his voice. They know when he is speaking, they know what his word says, and they know that when they hear the world trying to shout to them, that is not the direction that they go. They are devoted to him. They are a purchased people. They know that they are no longer their own. They know that they are no longer the devil's. They know that the beast could have no hold over them. They know that they are the Lord's. Their security and their trust is in the one who bought them. We are purchased with the blood of Christ. The blood of Christ is everything. They are truth-tellers. They speak the word of God. They counteract the lies of the world. They speak forth God's truth, his light, into a dark world. And then they are blameless. They are holy and blameless in him. And ultimately, we know from the book of Revelation that they will bring great revival to the world in this dark period of history. They will bring many souls to Christ. And for us now, we must ask the question, what impact could we have, what revival could we bring as we see the darkness encroaching in this world if we were willing to follow the Lamb wherever he goes? Amen. You've been listening to Theology and Apologetics. This podcast is supported by your generous donations. To help us continue to bring you great content, please visit our Patreon site at patreon.com theologyandapologetics. If you've been blessed by this podcast, please leave us a review and remember to connect with us on social media. For more resources, please go to theologyandapologetics.com. Thanks for listening.